Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of John, the 14th chapter, verses 1 to 9 and 11 to 14. Let's listen together for a word from God. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way to the place I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you this whole time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if you do not, believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading comes to us from the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 8 to 15, and chapter 7, verses 51 to 60. Let's listen again for a word from God. Stephen full of power and grace, did wonders, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those of Sicilia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat on the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face 
was like the face of an angel. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised of heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors did. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the laws as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. The word of the Lord. I love it in this text, they covered their ears, just like I used to do when I didn't want to hear what my parents were saying, and, you know, and then with a loud shout, they rushed Stephen. Let's open our ears and our hearts in prayer. Let's pray. We thank you, O oh God, for your sovereign love and gift of yourself to us, for your steadfast love, which won't abandon us even when we abandon you, and we pray that some assurance of that promise be with us now as we meditate upon your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this story. It's one of the best. I uh, did my best to edit it down, but you can't really edit narrations like this like you can do other parts of the Bible. Uh, this comes to us, as Graham read so well, from the 6th and 7th chapter of the book of Acts, which is really the second volume in our New Testament written by Luke, by that evangelist who was the only non-Jewish author of a gospel, but wrote not only a story of Jesus, but also a story of us, of, our, of the earliest years of the Christian church after the resurrection. And of course, what we read today is this account two chapters worth of the great hero of the church, Stephen, who is introduced to us early on in chapter 6 as filled with grace and power. And just before the sections and in the middle of the sections we read this morning, Stephen has drawn attention to himself in Jerusalem uh, by talking to anyone who will listen to him about Jesus, who has just died and, according to Stephen, just been raised by the power and glory and love of God. And, Luke says, Stephen has drawn undue attention to himself by doing what Luke, the author, calls signs of 
signs and wonders. So Stephen is just one of those people, you know, in your life who just, um, just is all in, has, has, has something going on about them. Have you met someone in your life who has sort of an aura of focus and of commitment, often very humble people, sometimes not so much, but they, they, have, they have something about them that, is, uh, that makes a difference in people's lives, signs and wonders. I mean, all of us can think of those folks in our own life stories. So a group of local and Jewish diaspora religious leaders, men, start to argue and debate with Stephen, and his answers are always so wise, Luke reports, that they could never refute him, even though he was arguing that the Messiah in Christ, the righteous one, has now come. So they get angry at him, and they drag him before the local religious council, the Sanhedrin, the most powerful group, think session in Presbyterian language, uh, there in Jerusalem. And this is, by the way, the religious council that had tried and then handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate before his execution. And now these same religious leaders bring false witnesses to accuse Stephen of preaching as Jesus did that the temple would be destroyed in three days. And also preaching against what they called the traditions of Moses, all the prophecies, all the books of what we call the Old Testament, which is the same thing as the Hebrew Bible. These are pretty serious accusations for a society and a religion and a people whose very existence and life they felt were all centered on the temple of God in Jerusalem. And again, it's the exact same charge, that implicit threat to the temple that got Jesus in trouble and eventually led to his death. But here today, we, we, that word comes up again, filled or full Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told, doubles down after they accuse him falsely there in the dock in the trial, and he calls his accusers stiff-necked, and he said they never listened to the prophet of God, and that's why they betrayed, they never listened to the prophets of God who come before him, and that's why they betrayed and then murdered the righteous one sent by God, and this enrages the crowd. They gnash their teeth. And they rush Stephen, and they drag him out to the city limits, and then they stone him to death, one rock after the other, until finally he succumbs and takes his last breath. Now, as I said, I love this story. It's a perfect story for a beautiful day like this when the weather is finally good. We're gathering as a church family at the Lord's table. Lent and Holy Week and Easter have come and gone, and they've been wonderful here. We have confirmation, the big celebration this evening, which we'll celebrate again in worship in two weeks. And our new board of deacons is meeting today, and that's so so exciting. Um, And I was so excited about telling this story until I realized that Stephen was the first deacon. And look what happened to him. The first rule of thumb for any leader of a volunteer organization is don't give the folks you're recruiting too much information about what's going to happen to them. Otherwise, they'll say no right away. It's a very fine line. You have to walk. But early in the church, they didn't have enough leaders to serve, in particular the widows, the most helpless among them, and the children, and those in the greatest need. So the early church elected seven deacons, and Stephen was the first one who got the phone call 
And Stephen said yes immediately. His hand went right up. Here I am, Lord. Choose me. Which begs the question, why? Pretty dangerous, not only to be a Christian, to become a, an identifiable leader of a Christian group. I sometimes, out in public, try not to tell people what I do for a living as long as I can. Because as soon as I do, it changes everything. Why would anyone step up and volunteer in an environment where actually trusting in God's love as the basic fact of your life is not popular or even close to being cool and is at best awkward? Why would somebody do that? And that's today. In Stephen's day, it was downright dangerous, as we've said. So these early Christians were faced with a lot of danger threat to their very lives, and yet something possessed them to say yes, to be public about who they were and what they trusted and believed in. And possess is a great word because we're talking about the Spirit of God now, who essentially replaces the earthly Jesus. He says, I'm going to the Father, but I will leave you an advocate, almost like a lawyer, I'm going to leave you someone who is going to be me with you always, the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus leaves for the early church and for Stephen. And Stephen leaves for us, as the children said, this example of the best kind of faith, not understanding, but trust, which leads to bravery, which leads to this defiant act. He's not going to give in to the powers and principalities of the world. So the first takeaway from Acts chapter 6 and 7, think about it. Stephen gets two whole chapters. Apparently it's pretty important to the author Luke. The first takeaway from God's word to us today is the question, what fills your life today? Because what fills your life now will define your legacy to future generations. That's what you're leaving for the rest of the world, for the people who come after you. You know, something very unusual happened to me just two days ago. I led a worship service where nobody wanted to leave. That can happen today. I went to a funeral where nobody want, wanted to leave. I had the privilege of doing a graveside funeral for a man named Herbert Hoover Clark. It was a small gathering around the graveside. And these kind of committal services usually just take a couple of minutes. You know, and off we go to lunch, usually. And we did have lunch, but later than we planned, because one person had planned to speak, but everybody there felt like they needed to say something. And they did. And then they kept saying things. They kept telling stories about this man, Herb Clark, whose daughter Nancy was a member of our congregation. They started saying, this, Herb never met a stranger. Herb was the kind of person who would walk up to you and introduce himself to you immediately and remember your name when he saw you the next time. He just had that sense of self. He was comfortable in his own skin, so comfortable in his own skin, so sure of some sort of inner essence that he was willing to give himself to you to break down awkwardness and difference and unfamiliarity. And in, in that sense, Herbert Hoover Clark never met a stranger. That's his legacy, of, among so many other gifts to his family and to the world. But you could feel it 
people did not want to let go of that precious gift he had given to them. He had two families. His first wife passed away, married again, and his stepchildren, just like his children, they adore him. They adored him, and that adoration, that love, and that gratitude was palpable. It was really quite interesting. You know, whenever you do a funeral, this is all like behind-the-curtain stuff. First of all, first rule of doing funerals, never park in the long line of cars. You'll never get out of there, right? You're almost a permanent member of the cemetery, so don't do that. Park in a separate place. The second one is they're on a timetable. They want you to move in and out of there, right? It's union stuff. So during this little service, I had the best view of the cemetery worker who was back there quite respectfully at a distance, but he kept getting closer and closer and closer to get in my sight line because apparently he had to go to lunch too. But we lingered because we couldn't leave because of what Herbert, Herb Clark had left for us all, what he left behind. Just the other day, I, I rolled into church a little bit later than usual, and I'm never quite that early, um, and Anne-Marie was here showing two brothers, the Dahlberg brothers, who grew up in this church in the 60s and 70s, visiting one from Hawaii, one from Washington, D.C., and they were looking around at the church in which they grew up, and they were remembering things, and they were so grateful that Anne-Marie had given, given them a tour, but they'd taken up enough of her time, so she handed them off to me, and I just made a few comments. We came into the sanctuary and said, hey, do you guys want to go out to the memorial garden, which is just, by the way, right behind our chancel? Take a look at it when you can. We're going to replace those hedges. They're dying for some reason. We're going to get them replaced. Beautiful spot of remembrance and love and gratitude. And so they walked out there, but, you know, that garden wasn't there when they were there. But I said, you know, maybe you'll know, know a name, recognize a name from up there, because we have a beautiful plaque which has all the names of the folks who are interred there. And they said, okay, sure, they were being kind of polite, but they were on, on a schedule. They had to leave pretty soon. We walked out there, and... They kind of looked, and then they went to the plaque, and then the older of the two brothers, who was, I think, born in 1940, something like that, suddenly he just made this sort of noise in his, from, his sort of, from his heart, and he saw one of the names up there was his childhood best friend with whom he had lost touch, who had died at the young age of 31. This man is now 80. And he hadn't thought of him in that kind of intimate way in all those years. And he walked up and he put his hand on the name just right out there and started to cry. And it was a privilege to be there, to see what that friend, that Sunday school buddy, that school friend, that neighbor had left behind. What is it that you're leaving? Because what fills your life now defines your legacy for the future. How you behave, how I act on a daily basis is our gift back to the world. The second insight from Stephen's life in the book of Acts is that what fills your life now is going to decide your focus in challenging times. We talked about it with the kids this morning. Life isn't always going to be easy and fun and smooth sailing. It's not always beautiful weather like this. What do they say? If you want to be good at something, you have to spend 10,000 hours doing it, right? Well, the corollary to that is that when you spend 10,000 hours doing something, you get pretty good at it. Like, in my case, binge-watching Netflix. 
one of the most significant Presbyterians in the last latter part of the 20th century and on the board at Princeton Seminary and a big inspiration in my life, Earl Palmer, um, was once asked, who's written many books, um, just passed away a few days ago, and it's a big blow to all of us. Though he was 91, what amazing life. But he used to say, because uh, I used to be a friend of the family and be at their house all the time, that's kind of how I watched what being a Presbyterian minister was like, and I guess I was impressed. But people used to ask Earl Palmer, hey, you know, they'd say, what's the secret to becoming a good writer? And he would always say, write something every day. It doesn't matter how good it is, just write. If you want to be a writer, don't talk about it, do it. The religious council, as we said, that falsely accused Stephen was the same one that had forced Jesus in front of Pilate. And as the kids and I discussed, Stephen didn't run, he didn't fight, he didn't defend himself. Verse 55 in our passage this morning reads, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man, which is an ancient messianic title in Jewish tradition of the Messiah, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that gave him the courage to face what he had to face. Instead of focusing on the threat around him, Stephen remained focused on the promises of God in a way beyond most of our capabilities, including mine. But the truth is, like Stephen, if you're in a hole, if you want to get out of that hole, if you want to get out of wherever you're stuck, you've got to put your money where your mouth is, your time, your energy, your focus. One of my favorite theologians is Charles Schultz, author of Peanuts, the Peanuts cartoon. In one of those cartoons, you've got Snoopy, the hound of heaven, saying of Woodstock, that would-be bird of paradise, you know, someday, Snoopy says to Charlie Brown, Woodstock will be a great eagle. Then in the next frame, Snoopy says, he's going to soar thousands of feet above the ground. And as he says that, as Snoopy says that, Woodstock, as if on cue, takes off. And he flies into the air. And Snoopy and Charlie Brown look on as the, he sees the bird flip upside down, whirling around crazily. And so then Snoopy has second thoughts, and he says in the third frame, well, maybe he'll fly hundreds of feet above the ground, but hardly have the words come out of his mouth when Woodstock plummets down to earth, splat, and he lies there his bat on his back, looking dazed. And Snoopy looks over him and says, Maybe he's just going to be one of those eagles who walks around a little bit. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how we settle for less than our full potential, less than the full promises which we are given as birth, our birthright from God? Don't settle. If you're in a hole, if you want to change, the only way out is by putting one foot in front of the other. And as my favorite, one of my favorite Christmas Special said, and soon you'll be walking across the floor. Put another foot in front of the other, and soon you'll be walking out the door. It just takes one day at a time of trusting, of praying, of listening to God. Changing your life can't be an add-on. It can't be something you do when you have some extra time. You have to love the language in the book of Acts. 
Stephen is filled with grace and truth. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. I've been accused of being full of things, too, in my life. And one, yet another evidence of that is I've been trying to change a few things recently myself. This robe is getting tight. It's shrinking. I don't know what's happening. So I started playing basketball again, but it's only one day a week. So I started trying to run at least one other day a week. But, you know, the 400-meter tracks have gotten longer. I don't know what's happened in recent years. It's not working one day a week, two days a week. You can't do it. You can't change by trying to, you know, be a person of love and faith and service when you have some extra time, when it doesn't conflict with your schedule. You can't lose weight if you keep eating and you you never run, never do anything. I am living proof of that. So I usually try to stay away from double entendres in my sermons. This double entendre, however, is that what you are leaving is not just your legacy. What we're called to leave is whatever that place is, that set of circumstances is, that is preventing us from being, living fully into ourselves, the person we're born to be, that God, the life that God has given to us and makes possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, that reunites us, reconciles us with our maker. And when we're connected to our power source, we function properly, like we're supposed to. Finally, the story points us forward as we prepare to gather around the table. Note that the people stoning Stephen, when they were done, they laid their cloaks at the feet of a man named Saul, a religious zealot leader of the Jewish Sanhedrin and others who were persecuting not only Stephen but Christians generally. Saul soon will become Paul on the road to Damascus, the founder really of the Christian church as we know it today. Out of pain, out of suffering, out of loss always comes new life if we're willing to leave behind what keeps us stuck and live into God's future. A century ago, John Henry Newman wrote an evening prayer which expresses well the whole spirit with which we can read this text from Acts this morning here in this season of Easter as we get ready for Pentecost and the arrival of the Holy Spirit in just a couple of weeks. Newman wrote in prayer, Support us, Lord, all the day long of this troubled life until the shadows lengthen and the evening comes when the busy fever of life is hushed and our work is done. Then, in thy mercy, grant us a safe lodging, a holy rest, and peace at last, through Jesus Christ our Lord. May it be so. Amen.